This is the Clinical Pharmacology Podcast with Nathan Tusher, where I discuss clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics topics from the perspective of drug development scientists. Today, we are going to talk about food and drugs. A very large number of marketed drug products are administered through the oral route. The drugs are then absorbed from the gastrointestinal or GI tract into the bloodstream where they can move to the site of action. But the rate and extent of absorption of drug products can be affected by food in the GI tract. For that reason, regulators want an assessment of the effect of food on the pharmacokinetics of each drug prior to approval. Today, we are going to discuss the June 2022 guidance from the FDA titled Assessing the Effects of Food on Drugs in INDs and NDAs, Clinical Pharmacology Considerations. When we take oral medications right after we eat, there can be significant effects on how much drug the body absorbs. These effects can depend on both the drug and the meal. So most small molecules are lipophilic or fat-loving molecules. So when we take those right after a meal with high fat content, the drugs dissolve in the fats that were in the food in our stomach, and then they're readily absorbed into the bloodstream. However, when we take those drugs on an empty stomach, the drugs struggle to dissolve in the GI tract, which is mostly aqueous, and we absorb much less drug. But each molecule is different, and thus we need to study the impact of food on oral drugs because there's three possible impacts. First, when you administer a drug with food, it could cause an increase in systemic drug exposure. Increases in drug exposure can lead to unwanted side effects or toxicity. Or these increases may be the only way we can achieve adequate exposure levels for poorly absorbed drugs. Second, When we administer drugs with food, it could cause a decrease in systemic drug exposure. In this situation, lower drug exposure could result in a loss of efficacy, which could go unnoticed initially, but it has long-term effects that are negative for the patient. And third, administration with drug could cause uh, an increase in the variability of drug exposure. This last problem is the most challenging because it could cause unexpected spikes or unpredictable lowering of drug concentration, which could make it difficult to achieve therapeutic targets. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss the timing of food effect studies in your drug development process, study design recommendations, and then a few other approaches that could be used in place of food effect studies in specific situations. An evaluation of food effects should be conducted early in clinical development, preferably before phase two trials are initiated. And then a definitive food effect study should be conducted with the to-be-marketed or market image formulation. While a single food effect study can suffice, often drug development programs will include at least two food effect evaluations. So this usually happens because the to-be-marketed formulation is not normally available when the first in human study is conducted. So a food effect evaluation is performed in an early phase one study, followed by another food effect study after the final formulation is available. In this common scenario, a food effect arm is included as part of the single ascending dose first in human study. And then this food effect arm involves having one cohort of subjects that receive two single doses of study drug at the same dose level. The first dose is done under fasting conditions, and then the second is 30 minutes after a high-fat meal is administered, and this usually involves about six to eight subjects. So generally, you use the highest dose level, which you expect to request for approval. 
For example, if you expect to have a 50 milligram dose and a 100 milligram dose, you would run your food effects study with the 100 milligram dose. So this is true if you have linear kinetics across your expected clinical range, but if instead you have drug, uh, a drug that has nonlinear kinetics, you'll actually have to run a food effects study at both the lowest and the highest dose levels for which you plan on seeking approval. For most drugs, the formulation used in early phase one studies is not the formulation that you'll be marketing to patients. Thus, concurrent with your phase three study, you're gonna run another food effects study with the to be marketed or market image formulation. This is normally a randomized two treatment, two period crossover design. In all cases, a complete washout of three to five elimination half-lives of the drug and any metabolites should separate the fed and fasted treatment periods. If your drug or metabolite has an elimination half-life of 24 hours or more, you may want to conduct a parallel rather than crossover study design. So for timing, the recommendation is to get an early assessment in one of your first clinical studies so you can properly prepare for dosing recommendations for phase two and three studies, and then conduct a definitive food effects study after the final to-be-marketed formulation is available. The design of food effects studies can have a significant impact on the results of the study and your labeling of your drug. So care in designing the proper study is really critical, especially if you're running the study with the to be marketed formulation in your late drug development program. So before we talk about study design details, let's discuss the target outcome or what you hope to get out of the study. So that puts some of the design uh, decisions into context. So food effect studies are intended to quantify the magnitude of the effect of food on the rate and extent of absorption for your drug product. So at the conclusion of your food effect study, you want to be able to add language to your proposed drug label that reads something like this. The recommended dosage of drug X is 500 milligrams orally twice daily, take with or without food. Or the recommended dosage of drug X is 500 milligrams orally twice daily. Take on an empty stomach at least two hours before or one hour after food. Or the recommended dosage of drug X is 500 milligrams orally twice daily. Take with a meal containing 400 to 1,000 calories and 25 to 50% fat content. So each of these is a little bit different. None of these statements is really considered better than others. You just need to know how are you going to instruct your patients to take the medication. From a marketing perspective, you may prefer to have a drug that is not impacted by food, but there are plenty of effective medications that have food effects that are on the market and that patients take successfully. What's important to know is how much effects the food has on the drug and do you need to make dose adjustments or recommendations to your patients. So the goal is to accurately quantify the magnitude of the effect of food on drug exposure and when food is present is exposure higher, lower, or the same as under fasting conditions. Food effect studies should generally be conducted in healthy adult male and female subjects. The evaluation should include at least a high-fat meal effect and may also include a low-fat meal effect. A crossover study is preferred. In a crossover study, each subject receives each treatment and they also serve as their own control in the data analysis. 
A parallel study can be conducted if the washout period required for a crossover study would be difficult. Normally, elimination half-life values of 24 hours or longer would suggest a parallel study design would be more economical. That's not really a regulatory requirement, but it's a practical issue. If you need five half-lives for a washout and the half-life is 24 hours, that means you would need a five-day washout period. This means you would need to house volunteers in the clinic for at least seven to 10 days to conduct the crossover study. Economically, it might be more efficient to run a parallel design study, but it should be noted that variability is higher in a parallel design study than crossover design because in a crossover design, a subject serves as his or her own control. But in a parallel study, you don't have that same control comparison. So where you might have a six-subject crossover study, that might turn into an 18-subject parallel study. So it's not a direct one-to-one comparison with a number of subjects. The dose that you use should be the highest clinically recommended dose if you have linear kinetics. If you have non-linear kinetics, you need to use both the lowest and the highest clinically recommended doses. Blood samples for PK concentration determination should characterize the complete profile following a single dose. So this usually means anywhere from 12 to 18 blood samples per subject per profile. And that usually is adequate to capture the absorption phase, the peak concentration, and the terminal elimination phase. One rule of thumb for sampling is to collect four samples prior to the peak, three samples around the time of Cmax, and five to 10 samples after Cmax. The reference treatment is the fasting condition. This is usually an overnight fast of at least 10 hours, and then the drug is administered with 240 milliliters or eight ounces of water. No food is given for four hours after the dose is administered. The test treatments are a high fat or a low fat meal. This is usually also an overnight fast of at least 10 hours, and then subjects begin eating the meal 30 minutes prior to administration of the drug. The whole meal should be consumed before the dose is administered. The drug is administered with, again, 240 mils or eight ounces of water, and no more food is given for four hours after the dose is administered. The high-fat meal usually has about 800 to 1,000 kilocalories, with more than 50% of the calories coming from fat. A low-fat meal is four to 500 kilocalories, with 25% of the calories coming from fat. You only do a low-fat meal if, you, if a high-fat meal is not tolerated or you want more clarity on food effect for labeling, such as maybe a yeah, a high fat meal is restricted, but you want to you want to allow a low fat meal to be administered. So these are the recommendations from the FDA guidance. But here is what I've commonly seen in early clinical development: a food effect arm is included as part of the single ascending dose study. Generally, at the at the next to highest dose level that's going to be tested, subjects participate in a food effect arm where they receive the first dose under fasting conditions and then a second dose after washout under high fat meal conditions. This design is economical because it is incorporated directly into the initial clinical study. So no additional cost for a separate protocol, separate study database or separate clinical contract. But this study is not optimal from a data analysis perspective. 
First, this is a fixed sequence design where all subjects are fasted in period one, and then all subjects are under fed conditions in period two. So any differences between periods will be attributed to the food effect. This could mislead you on the impact of the food effect if there are between occasion differences in exposure. So it could actually hide an effect or it can overestimate an effect depending on the nature of the between occasion differences. Also, there's no guarantee that the dose level that you test will align with clinically relevant doses determined later in development. With that said, this is likely the best use of resources to get an early idea of the potential impact of food on drug exposure. This study design will let you know if concomitant administration with a high-fat meal will cause a 50% decrease or a 50% increase in exposure. It will guide you how to recommend dosing for phase two and phase three clinical studies. And it will also help you to decide if you need to do more evaluations as you move forward in drug development. In late phase development, I generally have always seen a dedicated food effect study that is randomized is a crossover design if possible, and it's a single dose level using the market image formulation. These studies follow the FDA guidance quite closely in nearly all respects. For data analysis, you'll want to include summary statistics of PK parameters, along with a comparison of AUC and Cmax using geometric mean ratios. An absence of food effects can be claimed on the label if the 90% confidence intervals for the ratio of the geometric means between fed and fasted treatments are contained within the 80 to 125% equivalence limits. The most common parameters that change are AUC, Cmax, Tmax, and lag time. Changes in AUC suggest a change in overall bioavailability. Change in Cmax, Tmax, and lag time suggest a change in the rate or timing of absorption. Changes in clearance with food would be highly unlikely. There are some unique situations in which a food effect study is not needed. So this isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some common scenarios. First, if a drug product belongs to BCS class 1, meaning it is highly soluble, highly permeable and rapidly dissolving, the FDA may waive a food effect study if the drug has high absolute bioavailability. In this case, you can work with the FDA to file a food effect study waiver. Second, physiologic-based pharmacokinetic or PBPK analyses can be used as supportive information to predict food-drug interactions. PBPK modeling may be used to avoid additional food effect studies in special populations or even with new formulations. This area is evolving and discussions with the FDA are encouraged. Essentially, these methods leverage data from in vitro experiments to estimate drug absorption under various food conditions. This methodology can be very useful if the drug product is not easily administered to healthy adult subjects or if conducting a food effect study in patients is difficult. Third, if the product is intended to be mixed with soft foods, for example, applesauce or pudding, then food effect evaluations should include the mixture with soft foods in the clinical study. There's a specific FDA guidance on using soft foods and liquids as vehicles for drug administration that provides more details. Essentially, a combination of in vitro experimental results and clinical food effect studies can be combined to support labeling claims. 
food effect studies are not recommended in geriatric or pediatric patients. Healthy adult subjects can be used in both cases. So even if your drug is intended to only be used for a special population, you can run your food effect study in healthy adult subjects. And lastly, if you have a fixed combination drug product in which food effect studies have already been conducted on each individual drug component, you may not need to do a food effect study for the fixed combination product. If neither individual drug component has a food effect and the formulation release characteristics are not impacted by food, a dedicated food effect study might not be necessary. So to summarize, the evaluation of food-drug interactions is important to understand for development and labeling purposes. Administration of a drug with food may cause drug exposure to increase, decrease, or become more variable. Once you understand the impact of food on drug exposure, you can provide that information to patients and physicians. Food effect evaluations are conducted both during early clinical development and again with the final market image formulation. The most common study design for the final food effect study is a two-treatment, two-period crossover study. I hope this information is useful in your drug development efforts, and I'd love to hear from you about unique food effect study designs and the effects you have seen in your development programs. For more information, please connect with me on LinkedIn, send me an email to nathan at tushersolutions.com or sign up for my newsletter at tushersolutions.com forward slash newsletter. The newsletter is a copy of the show notes sent to your email each time an episode is released. Also, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to the show. Thank you.